welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our appreciated radio syndicates across the nation. Across the nation. Or on the podcast at greenmajority.ca. I am Curly Dave Hostetter <laughs> in studio with Stefan Hostetter, Saren Kaster on the dials as well as the mic, and Tim Nash, the most respected and beloved friend of the program. Uh, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. For accuracy's sake, what? this is the world reigning champion mm-hmm. correspondent, mm. all-time record-setting Tim Nash. I don't know, yeah. Lauren's gotta be... She's, like... ca- she's catching you, but you, you still... Uh... Well, she, she has an official status that Tim lacks. Oh, uh, right. And, you, and I do have half guest. a decade. I feel like I've been coming on here for Yeah, you've got a, a bit now. of time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes, unfortunately, Lauren Lortour cannot make it. Today she was pulled away last minute, but she would have loved to comment for us. Yes, especially as she always does. Yes, especially on 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 on, on this uh, this opening topic. So yes. we've got, we've got a show for you. Uh, you want to upload naturally. It? naturally? Naturally, this is what we're doing here. Yeah, that's what we're doing here. Yeah, in case yeah. you were wondering what you were listening to, it's a show. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's got Good. three big topics. What, you want to outline the three topics for us? Dave? So we're gonna do that our time protest that happened in Ottawa. Those kids were arrested. Not not all of them were terribly young. The media is all like, oh, it's all youth, it's all young people. Most of them are. Right. But some of them are, you know, young identifying like Stefan Hostetter. I, I do identify yeah. as young. Yeah. And uh, then we're going to talk about the youth lawsuit being brought by Canadian children, actually children between the ages of 10 and 19 against the Canadian government, specifically Her Majesty the Queen. Uh, and then we're going to talk about the Exxon Mobil case, which has recently gone to trial in New York, although they're also being sued by Massachusetts. And they're also having other tr- hearings in Washington and so forth, they're sort of coinciding, so that's interesting. All right. Well, let's uh, let's jump into the protests. So yes, uh, thirty-one people, mostly quite young, uh, including Cricket. Was it Cricket Chang? Yes. Cricket Chang was there as well, who we uh, interviewed for this show uh, a few weeks ago. Yes. For that climate protest. Yes. He was there, um, and they staged a protest in support of a Green New Deal in the House of Commons in Ottawa this past Monday on the 28th of October. They entered as part of a free visitors tour and eventually sat down in the House of Commons and refused to move. They were eventually removed by security after 15 minutes and given trespassing tickets and a 30-day ban. One protester interviewed by the Canadian press said our new minority parliament is the best chance Canada has ever had to tackle uh, to take uh, climate action. The protesters all held yellow signs uh, espousing Indigenous rights, a Green New Deal, good work, dignity and justice, uh, and they were officially representing the Our Time campaign, but many, of course, were involved with other environmental groups as well, as this, as this past year's groundswell of environmental activism has spawned new groups all over the country. One protester by the name of Julia Da Silva went on Ricochet Media to talk about why they were protesting. She writes, quote, It was 385 days ago when the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change gave us 12 years to be well on our way to transforming our economy to tackle the climate crisis. In Canada, we cannot afford to waste four more of those precious years. That's why I participated today in an occupation of the House of Commons in Ottawa with 30 other youth to demand politicians come together and form a government that will make a Green New Deal for Canada priority number one in this new parliament. This isn't the first time I've been arrested for climate action like this. 
She goes on to point out that Trudeau failed monumentally to deliver any real change after so many young people came out to support progressive policies in 2015 and kick out Mr. Stephen J. Harper. A man who tried to silence his own scientists and was so impersonable that he couldn't even authentically convey his admiration for a popular television show during his desperate attempt to appear like a man of the people during that campaign four years ago. But for some reason, so many of us then put our faith in Justin, who has turned out to be an empty shell waiting to be filled with whatever position his party deems most politically viable. Four years ago, De Silva writes, is, quote, when the restructuring of the entire way our economy functions in order to deal with the climate crisis should have been started. But Trudeau quickly turned to the status quo, approving climate wrecking pipelines, ignoring indigenous rights, and putting the interests of fossil fuel billionaires over the rest of us. End quote. And now, after much campaigning to ensure that politicians know how urgently real climate action is needed, Trudeau has come out and promised tax cuts and pipelines, and therefore we have this protest in Ottawa, uh, very quick fire and immediate, in which the participants delivered to MPs what they called mandate letters from our generation, telling the government what they're expecting. The document says, quote, We have 11 years to, address, to get our house in order and address climate change on a systemic level. Inequality is rising in this country as the rich, privately hoard wealth that could be used to fund collective solutions while leaving the rest of us behind. End quote. The document demands slashing carbon pollution by 45% by 2030 and zero by 2050, uh, I guess 100% by 2050, respecting indigenous rights and sovereignty, starting with fully implementing UNDRIP and routinely listening to indigenous communities for justice-based climate solutions, creating millions of good jobs through a World War II-like effort, and connecting this effort to dignity, justice, and equity. Regarding this potential, uh, the potential of this new parliament, Clayton Thomas Muller wrote an article recently for APTN News in which he expresses hope for the seven Green New Dealers who were just elected to parliament, including Leia Gazan, whom he believes could be Canada's AOC. He notes that Gazan met with the Our Time protesters this week and writes, quote, our time has been working for the last nine months to build a national movement to establish the largest voter bloc of students, youth, and Indigenous peoples in Canadian history. This visionary, youth, uh, this visionary youth movement and their investment in organizing and training thousands of young people across Canada paid off. Our time is sending eight members of Parliament, or our Green New Deal squad, who have committed to work across party lines to push for a Green New Deal, the only bold plan on the table to tackle the climate emergency and rising inequality. Talking about the failure of Scheer and Trudeau to engage in a climate debate during the campaign, he writes, quote, The Canadian media played its part, too, in suppressing climate as an issue during the election, and this demonstrated both fear and how deep the influence of the fossil fuel lobby is in Canada's corporate media sector. The new MPs he expresses this hope for are Jenny Kwan, Nikki Ashton, Matthew Green, Daniel Blakey, Alexandre Bouchris, Peter Julian, Don Davies, and Leah Kazan. All right. Yeah. So this is yeah, – so I was – I happened to attend a, a talk yesterday um, with uh, David Wallace Wells and uh, – who wrote uh, Uninhabitable Earth. 
in 2017, which oh, is yeah. then turned into a, into a book. He's hot now. Yeah, he's well. So is the Earth, according to him, uh, and the rest of us. Uh, yeah, not good, Tim. Not good. Anyways, <laughs> um, uh, the this the big fire on the front of the page. Um, so, but and it was it was it was interesting because it was it was a panel that was also moderated by uh, by by a man Kai from from Dogwood, which is a BC. Um, uh, BC. I loved how he described it. He was like, "We're from BC. We're, we're, we're BC only, and that's the way we like it." Which I thought was a uh, interesting sort of way to take on a particular type. You know, the, the type of activism they have is sort of like, "No, we are a regional voice for for BC." And he sort of he was in, he sort of spoke at the end uh, when we sort of caught up with him a little bit about how he how he imagines uh, or, or how difficult he imagines actually building TMX is going to be, um, you know, in that, in that, especially the, the part that has to be built directly under the mountain that Simon Fraser university is, is, is sitting on. Um, and, 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 and how much there is a, you know, the, the youth movement could cause some real problems there. You know, his, his, he had a very, he had a kind of interesting point. He was sort of like, look, if a bunch of 16 year olds whose records will be expunged in two years uh, and who have no assets to take away, uh, decide to really be disruptive, it's really difficult to to deal with that. You know, there's a level of 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 protection that exists with with youth protest um, because of the fact that the society doesn't have a thing to take away from them because they haven't given them anything yet. You know, what are they supposed to do? Um, and and which is an interesting point. I think that, that I think there's a there's a the TMX conversation will be will be one that uh, and, and and clearly you know from this protest alone. The youth are going to keep protesting. We're not like we're not. This is not the end of, yeah, of movement. Yeah, Trudeau's like mm, taxes, tax cuts, and pipelines, and they're like we're going to take to Ottawa. Yeah, right like, now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll be we'll, we'll see you there. And 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 I, I, but but again, at the same time, I do think that there is a, a great opportunity here uh, for again for pushing Green New Deal. I think you know we're, we could not have had an outcome. I think that would be more likely to to be movable on this issue than we were going to get. Um, now, unfortunately, um, you know you have uh, you have none of the leaders. Like Trudeau sort of has vanished in a weird way. Like there's a there's yeah. an article yesterday, I believe, of sort of like every major leader is sort of one wondering what like he just sort of hasn't reached out to it doesn't seem like he's really mm. begun even indicating who he even thinks he wants to work with uh which is an which is an interesting decision now again you campaign for that long you probably want to break so yeah. whatevs but and it's going to be hard for him to learn how to collaborate mm. right? right like this is a government that has had a majority for the last four years that you know really one of the disappointments for me was that you know harper introduced these like omnibus bills these massive right. documents that everybody hated because it was just like this huge dump of information and there was no chance to debate it and then he sort of you know the liberals continued that process yeah. of just like putting all this and and so now all of a sudden we're in a situation where he's got to collaborate Right. And I think that that's a very challenging skill. Um, And so, you know, my my hope is that the sort of liberal party brain trust is going to be kind of coming together and and figuring out going through the policies of the other parties saying, you know, what are the things that we do agree with that we think that we can get support on? I would say that. You know, for whatever reason, they came out with sort of tax cuts in the pipeline is probably something that they would expect to get the conservative uh, a party to support. So it's kind of strange to me that that's where the olive branch is going kind of first and foremost. 
Um, you know, I do think the overarching narrative from the election has been this sort of Western alienation, which I don't fully agree with. Like, we can talk about youth alienation, you know, I think when it comes to, to the climate issue, and that's not going to be as apparent on an electoral map, but is, is still so-so there. But it, it sounds to me like, it seems to me that, that really what Trudeau's going to do here is sort of, you know, try to work with each party uh, measure by measure. And that I think it is up to protesters and it is up to all of us as Canadians to really push this notion of the Green New Deal, that that's a win that he can get. And I think we need to keep with this message of, of, of justice and just transition and indigenous rights and worker rights um, and really kind of push this uh, idea that this isn't an environmental initiative. This is a, a very much a societal initiative, both in terms of reconciliation and in terms of job retraining, mm -hmm. which is something that I think would resonate with so many Canadians, not just those in the prairies. Yeah. And what's interesting is is to when you look at the polling numbers about who supports a liberal NDP uh, working together, it's more people, so 41% of respondents either support or strongly support this, which is more votes, that, more percent, higher percentage of Canadians than any party got. Like the, the And then another 23% say they accept it, and only 25% say they oppose or strongly oppose it, which means that if you, you know, again, this is, a, is one poll. Uh, yeah, you know, and that's not, your conservative base, right? Right, like exactly, the, yeah. And they, they, were, they were sold this, like, boogeyman fear of a liberal NDP coalition, which isn't going to happen. Right. It's not going to be formalized. But, you know, that was their worst case scenario. And I do think that, you know, the zeitgeist from this election, at least from where I'm sitting, is that Canadians wanted collaboration, mm -hmm. that they didn't think that any of these parties deserved a majority, which they didn't. And that now, you know, we want them to work together. So, you know, I would say I think, you know, and I believe in diversity of tactics. So like power to these protesters, they did an awesome job in getting this message out there. You know, at the same time, uh, I, I would say like we're through an election, let's like leave the Trudeau bashing a little bit. Darren, I'm looking at you with this. Let's just like, if we can just like give a month where it's just like, what can we agree on? What what can we support? What are the, the policies that, that multiple parties can agree are a good idea? And let's try to get some form of constructive dialogue to actually, you know, move us forward. And, 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 I, and I think there is... Um uh, I, and, I, and I think you're right. And I think there's also a, a conversation here um, around what, you know, like, like it's, it's interesting that, that, that we, that we are, are weirdly stuck in this, this fact that like, and what's interesting about this 25% oppose is the base, but they got 37% of the vote, which means that there is this, this, this amorphous 12% that actually sort of are coming out that, that sort of may still be okay, fine with this, right? Like they might've voted conservative, but there's still a level of like, all right, well, you know, this would still be a fine way to govern. Um, which I think again, indicates that there's, you know, maybe more support for, uh, uh, for for uh, for a coalition that works towards climate and other things, then then there might even be you might even presume from the numbers. Absolutely, like I think what we're looking for is is consensus on a path forward, right? And there are going to be you know climate change deniers. There are going to be the people that are always going to be against this no matter what. But really, you know, it's now at the point where we've been talking about this so long, and I would argue that the economic shift is so apparent. 
Like when I go on BNN now, like it's not like like when we look at the returns of green companies and we look at the returns of oil and gas and pipeline companies, like it's just so obvious that this transition is now well underway that, you know, I think most reasonable people are, are going to accept that, okay, like let's, let's figure out the best way to do this in a way that's going to work for everyone. Um, and, you know, there's always going to be that minority who are just going to shut it down. And unfortunately, they do have a lot of political power in, in Alberta right now. But, you know, I think really it's, it's it, you know, we're long past consensus that we need to move forward. Now what we need to figure out is the nitty gritty, is the policy path that actually takes us towards this low carbon transition. Yeah, and and I, and I think to go back to your brief point about about sort of the idea that youth uh, the, the, that there's this the youth are sort of disenfranchised or or really that what yeah. what I find interesting about uh, and this exists a couple in a couple different places, um, but where when you look at a map they're like look these you know all of this space voted voted this way and all of this space didn't so like this is Western alienation and you and and that hot masks the thirty percent of people. Uh, you know who who are living in the living in a fully conservative riding that did not vote for their representation, right? Yeah. There's a there's a whole it, it's it. It creates, I think, a, a wider narrative because of how it looks. In the same way that you sort of, when you see in a, a United States map, and it's largely red, it's like sure, but empty space doesn't get a vote. You know, like it doesn't matter how much space you're covering. Yeah, uh, don't get me started on maps and right. how we present data. Yeah, like this is a huge issue, right? But it's just like, yeah, absolutely. And and I would argue that it's not about east versus west. I think you're right. It's much more uh, urban versus rural. Yeah, like that is by far a, a massive division here. And I would argue that, that there's a huge generational divide as well that, you know, we don't we don't pick up on because obviously that's not quite as easy to color in a map. Yes, exactly. Yeah, or, or to have that conversation. Uh, sorry, but certainly. Yeah, no, I just wanted to enter. Uh, I'll take your cue, uh, Tim. I'm not going to go on a rant, but I would like to enter. I, I do have a prediction based on a piece of data I'd like to enter into the record of this discussion, which sure. was uh, and, and I apologize, I, I, I don't have it uh, handy, but it was uh, being shared by some mainstream uh, media outlets. So, I mean, take that for what it's worth the, of the validity of it. Um, but it wasn't just like a random Twitter account showing that uh, it, the the claim of the study, I, I didn't find the original study. So I'm just putting that disclaimer on there, but it was being shared by, I don't remember who it was, National Post, whoever it was. Uh, but it, it appears that the, or the claim was that the liberals benefited the most from strategic voting. Oh yeah. Which is very, very important to keep in mind because they got a minority government while a bunch of people who don't who they are not their first choice voted for them to keep the conservatives out yeah. so that's very important to keep in mind so their actual support is even weaker than their elected support that's my that's my observation yeah. my theory my prediction and I'll and I'll stop it here but here's my prediction and you're going to say I'm being cynical again mm -hmm. but this I'm serious this is a serious prediction um, he's trying to buy time to figure out how to square and sell and market a coalition with a conservative government and he's going to call it this is the center of Canada. This is us bringing the country together. Hear me now. Quote me later. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll do that either way because uh, I feel like it's more likely he'll more likely they'll probably go the other way. But we'll find out. Um, but I do think. What, what, but you've got to jump on the strategic pointing voting point because I think actually is interesting. There was a study also that came out or a questionnaire that came out that showed that all that presumed that the highest number of people who said they voted strategically were young people. 
almost something like 35 percent of the young of young people vote stated they voted quote unquote strategically. And of course, there's that word is is a huge uh, you know red herring um, because the the amount of information you have to have or or the like what I love there was my uh, tweet during the election about voting strategically was like to vote strategically you have to have a strategy <laughs> um, you know like strategic voting isn't just you know you have to know the information of what's going on and then you know you have to vote strategically oh it's not based on the national poll no it's not just oh that. Yeah. darn it I did it wrong yeah it, well and then well it, it is also not based again as we had a, we had a, Tim and I had a question off 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 mic uh, a couple days ago about you know, a lot of the national polling that's like 338 uh, yeah. Canada and stuff like that is based off of sort of historical data Those and polls. national polling, and they're not actual polling. They're projections. It's, yeah, so it's not actually polling what specifically right. is in that particular writing. So yeah. it doesn't include new great candidates. That's it doesn't right. include other things like that. And this is where I'm at, is that we need writing-level polls, yeah. which are expensive. It's about 10K to do like a proper sample size at a writing-level poll. But that's what we need, because otherwise, I think what's happening is voters are going into the voting booth and, you know, sort of trying to do this strategic, but it's based based on media and it's based on polls and projections that really have no bearing on their local riding and the candidates that are there and the race that's happening there, which is what we're actually voting for. So, you know, I think that, you know, we've been wanting electoral reform for so long. I'm of the opinion that it's off the table for at least the ne next oh, yeah. 10 years. Yeah. So what I'm going to be thinking about in the next, however, until this, you know, uh, we do have an election, probably not four years, but towards that yeah. is, is, you know, what, how, how do we, how do we game this, you know, first past the post system? How do we actually have strategic uh, voting? And I think to me, it's coming down to the riding by riding information, that it's not enough to follow the national trends. It's not enough to follow the provincial or even those like regional trends, that you need to know the actual candidates that are running in your riding. And you can't just like count the road signs <laughs> as you like, you know, walk to work. It's like, you've got to actually uh, get data and, and, you know, with the, the parties don't have a lot of money, right? Like yeah. that per, per vote subsidy is now gone. So all these parties are broke. There probably won't be an election for a while. But this means that, you know, I think for our participation in democracy, it's not enough just to go out and vote anymore, that we need to be giving money to parties that we support. And my dream is that we also need to be giving money to be able to fund these riding level polls so that people have actual information to make a sound strategic decision. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're, we're running up to this. So we'll go to music break and then we'll uh, then we'll come back. Um, but but yeah, I, I, you know, that's the sort of where I come to at the very end of this as well is that, you know, we're probably not, I agree with you, we're probably not going to get uh, proportional limitation in this, in this next two and a half years. I honestly think at this point, you're probably looking at a, a much longer game of getting, uh, you know, things like ranked ballots into municipal politics sure. uh, and, and getting people sort of more used to it. London, Ontario has already moved to yep. ranked ballots. And so I think there's probably a longer game there around sort of normalizing other voting systems before you might get, I think, more comfortability with, with this. And again, at this point, I don't think Trudeau, Trudeau, how much, how much he sort of backed down on it last time to to have that as the thing that he's going to give up this yeah. time seems seems to be very unlikely and and I can't imagine either the PC party or the NDP is making that a deal breaker right you yeah. know conditional support I think that we're going to be in the status quo for at least the next election cycle my guess is probably the next three or four election cycles yeah and so the question is how do we how do we use what we have now that's it um, and you know again I do think consistent pressure and uh, like if there's ever a time to ramp up your climate is right now because of the fact that you have we'll have support from other people yeah. and you can sort of use that but let's go to a music break we'll come back uh, with 
with the fact that the youth are suing our government, uh, which we've talked about before, but we'll bring it back again. New updates. One, two, three, four, five, six, nine, ten. Money can't buy you back the love that you had The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And welcome back to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city. I am David Hostetter, Stefan Hostetter, Tim Nash, sustainable economist himself, Saren Kaster as well. We should add TV star Tim Nash. Right. Yeah, I'm getting better at that. TV yeah. celebrity Tim Nash. <laughs> I was really nervous when I started doing this. And right, but I'm getting, getting yeah. a little better. I'm going to be on uh, BNN's Market Call yeah. on Tuesday at noon. It's a call-in mm-hmm. show, so if people want to call in with some green investment picks. Do you ever scold people harshly? <laughs> uh, yeah, sometimes people oh. do bad things. Well, they'll just be like, they'll come with like a very specific technology and then tell me that like they, they invested a huge percentage of their money <laughs> oh, on no. this one. And I'm like, no, don't do that. That. Can you undo that Diversification now? <laughs> is your friend. So that's like the closest I get to scolding people. <laughs> Word. All right. Well, uh, it's somewhat different than, than stock picks. Uh, you <laughs> suing the suing country. So we mentioned back in July and actually in an episode that Tim Nash was also a part of. So the, the cycle goes There's round and round. continuity here. Yes. <laughs> Uh, that a group of uh, letters were sent to Trudeau from Canadian youth across the country threatening legal action against the government after their purchase of the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline, arguing that the government is violating the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms under Sections 7 and 15, which they used to claim that the government is unlawfully depriving its citizens of their right to life, liberty, and security by willfully perpetuating and aggravating the climate crisis, and is thereby also unlawfully discriminating against young people uh, who are disproportionately affected by the crisis. Section 15 protects citizens from discrimination, while Section 7 states that no citizen can be deprived of their rights except in accordance with principles of fundamental justice. Thus, they claimed that there is no principle of fundamental justice that would allow the government to perpetrate the kinds of harms caused by the climate crisis against its citizens. Back in July, you might remember our reading out of some of the letters that were sent from teenagers saying they were suffering from panic attacks, losing sleep, and dropping out of school in their anxiety over our continuing ecocide. Some of them wondered what the point of going to school was if their future itself was dying. Well, now we have an entirely different group of young people following through with a lawsuit against the government for its criminal exacerbation of climate change, also making use, central use, of the sections 7 and 15 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The action was filed on the 25th of October 2019 against Her Majesty the Queen in right of Canada and the Attorney General, which includes the Government of Canada. They begin by laying out the universally accepted science of climate change, noting that Canada is among the 10 biggest national emitters in the world and has known full well for decades that its actions were destabilizing the climate system, without which society would, of course, be impossible, and that there is a disproportionate harm done to youth as a result. The document states, quote, 
The plaintiffs seek declarations that the defendants, the government, have unjustifiably infringed their rights and the rights of all children and youth in Canada, present and future, as guaranteed under Sections 7 and 15 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. As well, the plaintiffs say that the defendants have a common law and constitutional obligation to protect the integrity of common natural resources, such as waterwaves and, and the atmosphere and so forth, that are fundamental to sustaining human life and liberties. The plaintiffs seek a declaration that the defendants, the government, have failed to discharge their public trust obligation with respect to these resources. They then list the plaintiffs uh, who are from all across Canada and between the ages of 10 and 19, stating, quote, the plaintiffs will ensure that all children and youth, present and future, who are disadvantaged by not having access to the political process in the way that those who have a right to vote do, will have access to justice. It then provides a detailed and clear representation of the current climate risks of our CO2 emissions, globally and then nationally, noting that you can use a global carbon budget to derive what a, a nation's reasonable fair share is. Then it meticulously lists all the harms it argues our government is currently inflicting upon us and shows how the government is in control of the systems perpetuating these criminal harms and has the authority to fix it, but instead continues to make it worse. The document then lists all the ways in which climate change is already affecting the lives of each of the plaintiffs. Many paragraphs on this. Very detailed. Including asthma, Lyme disease, crop failures, floods, psychological trauma, depression, anxiety disorder, and cultural and spiritual decay. The plaintiffs are seeking court orders declaring that the government has a common law and constitutional obligation to act in a manner compatible with maintaining a stable climate system, that the government has infringed upon the, pl the plaintiff's rights and in their duties to protect public trust resources, orders requiring a proper accounting of Canada's emissions, including from fuels sold to other countries and from imported goods, the development of an enforceable climate recovery plan, and an order, quote, retaining jurisdiction over this action until the defendants have fully complied with the orders of this court and there is reasonable assurance that the defendants will continue to comply in the future absent continuing jurisdiction. Yeah, so I'm always fascinated by these, by these lawsuits because they, they really do call into question the, the power of the courts to, to affect policy, right? Um, in that, you know, there's the, the court, they, they, I feel like these two branches, obviously government sort of, you know, are, are often quite separate, right? The fact that, and intentionally kept separate for very good reasons, um, that you, that you cannot have that, the, the idea that the courts are not, you know, you make the law somewhere else and then that is enforced by the courts. Um, but to try to then have the courts dictating what kind of law is, is actually made is, is a little more difficult of a, of, of a loop to close. You know, we've seen, we've seen the, I believe it was in Denmark where such a lawsuit was successful. And in the law, and 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 then the courts were like, you have to do this, and 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 then I believe that, and, and that, that did actually work. I believe that did lead to some improving uh, mm. of timelines and targets, but but the law won't ever, t but even the laws, lawsuit of nature won't tell you exactly how to do it. And so it really, but at the same time, if you're the government, you know, the more you ignore your own court system, the more you undermine the, your the authority that your whole thing rests on. 
and so I really do think that these, these types of things really call into question sort of the nature of our democracy as a whole. Uh, but Tim, I'll you. Yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, diversity of tactics. Uh, we need pressure from so many different angles. Uh, take all opportunities and avenues to be able to uh, uh, push the agenda on this issue. I mean, climate change is an issue that affects absolutely everything. Right, every sector, every company, every person, every province, every everything. So you know, I think that we need pressure coming from all those different angles. I'm not going to comment on whether I think this is the best one or not. Right. You know, I think this is a great one. Um, you know, I guess where my frustration lies is that you know, obviously, I'm seeing so much momentum from youth groups. Like so much with the, the the climate strike, that was just phenomenal. We've got this lawsuit coming up. We're doing this. How come you know, sort of younger people, aged eighteen, you know, to where I am, thirty six. How come so few of us vote? Mm. Like this was the first election where there were more millennials voting age than baby boomers, mm. and like we had the opportunity to like completely take the country by surprise and show up in force and just like you know have this sea change of uh, uh, democratic participation, and we just didn't. So to me, it's just it's one of these things where, yes, like I love this pressure. I love this lawsuit. Keep it going. Let's get this like in the court system, in the books. You know, let's set a precedent if we can. Let's use absolutely every avenue. Um, you know, at the same time, I think that there's as activists, we're always trying to sort of push the envelope and come up with new ways of pushing the agenda forward. And I guess from where I sit, it's always back to this fundamental idea of like, what, what do we have right now that we can use, that we can leverage? And that rather than trying to com always invent these new systems, these new processes, in this case, these new legal precedents, um, you know, how can we just effectively use the tools that we have right now to be able to, to push that forward? So that's my only frustration. I love, I love what they're doing. Obviously, I support that 110%. It's just, you know, I, I, I want to see it from, you know, as well as the, the sort of the existing power structures. Yeah, I do think that there, there's, to, to sort of, th sort of gets away from the lawsuit question, but I, to get back on, onto the sort of voter turnout question, I, what's interesting is, is the, there are many proven ways to increase voter turnout. And in a lot of uh, decisions are, 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 you know, the fact that we saw a huge increase in early voting, uh, yeah. This election, it's true. which actually was interesting, is a huge increase in early election, but actually did not end up translating to more votes overall. So basically, what we learned was people like voting early. Yeah, there's uh, no lineup. Yeah, exactly. It was great. Yeah, it's just <laughs> yeah. better. And so that, but but that didn't necessarily. Although you know, we did actually see the fact that it came close-ish to last time, given how much you know, given the fact that that you know, compared to 2015, 2019 was a much less. I'd say energetic campaign. You, you know, there was, no one was running to the polls, uh, like, or at least not too many people uh, from this campaign compared to you know the the sort of Trudeau mania that we saw in, in 2015. But but I do think that there's you know like I, I believe the city of Edmonton voted against providing free transit uh, on election day. Yeah. You know yeah we, that we, should we, be a no brainer. Yeah like we, we, we there's a bunch of simple things that we've done to make it not as easy. You know the elections Canada moved a bunch of uh, a, a bunch of voting booths or voting things. Out, out from it, from you know from Toronto public housing into right. into condos. You know, there's like these sort of things that are that that sort of certainly make it harder for people to vote. Yeah, and and and, and you could and, and or, or there's always a suggestion of starting in six at moving the voting earlier to 16, so you can get people when they're in high school, so they yeah. get in the habit of it. You know, there's there's a lot of things we could be doing that we're not. 
I would be I, the the idea of lowering the age and just bringing it into high school. And I would say even if you're not 16 or whatever the age is, like I think there should be a fake ballot for. I think that mm. every single student should cast their first ballot municipally, provincially, federally while they're in high school. Right. right? We have a four-year yeah. election cycle. We have four years of high school. If we set that up right, then, you know, my understanding of any type of behavioral uh, economics and science is that the hardest thing is getting people to do something the first time. So if we can just make that mandatory in high school, where it's just like part of the thing that you do, then everybody understands it. They can understand the importance. And then it becomes, you know, something that that I think uh, uh, is certainly more of a default setting. Yeah, uh, and, and, and interesting. Just from a turnover perspective, if you ignore, uh, you know, the ones. So if you out of, after twenty fifteen, which was the highest turnout in quite some time, th- this turnout would have been the highest since uh, nineteen ninety three. Yeah, you know, so that's still a you know, there's still an uptick in in interest, uh, hist- although still lower than historical average, which is seventy percent here in Canada. Yeah. Um, but but it is a it is interesting to sort of see how that goes, and you know, and there's a lot of a lot of studies about like, also how um, you know how you might communicate and get young people to the polls. You know, there's there's a great organization called Future Majority that we had actually on the election show. We had a representative uh, talking about it, um, and 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 they you know they were able to get you know twenty four twenty four thousand to twenty six thousand students to advance polls. Uh, you know, and literally by walking them there. This isn't like people who yeah. said they're going. They literally walked with them yeah. to go there. You know, and, and that so that's they know for a fact that these people voted. Right. Um. And and so I think that there's a you know a a, a push there to try to figure this out. Yeah. And I mean, I think you know, and again, it's like it's it's diversity of tactics. I don't think there's ever going to be one solution to this. You know, and this is why I love seeing all these different protests, all these different activists from so many different areas. Um, You know, I see a lot of it on the investment side. So like with divestment, with shareholder engagement, with all these different approaches, there's not one that's like the the one. Right. Right. It's like we need all of these different things happening at the same time. Uh, This is what systemic change looks like. Right. right. So, uh, you know, I'm really encouraged. I'm really encouraged. Um, you know, I think that there is an energy, there's a momentum uh, uh, and, and really people are talking about this in at a level that, that I don't think we ever have before. But again, I'm going to come back to this. You know, I think everyone now acknowledges that we need to do something. Mm-hmm. And now it's time to like do the work. And, like, actually listen to the people that have been talking about this for, like, 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah, right. About, like, okay, what are the best ways of doing it? Yeah. And uh, the, the, the one depressing stat that I'll leave before we go to the next music break um, was, uh, again, from this talk yesterday that I attended, that, you know, the last 30 years we'd re- we've released more emissions um, than, than we had in the, in the previous history of humanity. Uh, which, which means that in, that, and in 1990, we knew climate change existed. That's the thing. So we have now done, uh, you know, in last, in, in, like, in, with, with, in, in the 80s, we started new climate changes. But, like, in the last, like, basically, we've done more knowing that climate change existed to harm the planet than we had in the entire history of not knowing previously. Uh, and so this idea that it's just education that we need is, is I think, at this point, resoundingly lost. Yeah. Uh, and the question is, can we get this diversity of tactics? And one thing I will also say about, about the fact that, you know, it's not just one group. It's also the fact that these groups are, you know, are showing up for, for for in other causes, right? You know, there was you know there's a there, a number of a number of people ha- from the climate justice Toronto group have, have have you know have been showing up for you know, anti deportation rallies and yeah. uh, you know in 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 protesting you know even the, even the you know the 
the anti-trans speaker that spoke at uh, Toronto Public Library earlier this week. Like th- these are th- this is a this is becoming a I think a, a movement of. Uh, of of intersectionality that is able to that is able to push sort of the the true solution of of total reform forward yeah. uh, that is necessary and, and I think that's a, a let's much work larger together vulnerable. exactly like what? let's yeah, I know like this let's is just collaborate and that's that's it like we got to figure out how to do that yeah um, so we'll come back with uh, with one more story on 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 Exxon Mobil uh, and uh, the the major first major climate lawsuit to go to trial uh, against them uh, but right now let's go to a music break. Seen Saskatoon. I've driven down the highway one, just hoping that I'd see you soon. Back to the green majority, back to the studio now. CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city. You're really like laying it on there, don't you? You have to lay it on thick stuff, and you have to lather it in there like a nice red velvet cake with that. Cream cheese frosting. All right, let's let's get on Exxon. <laughs> I'm going to continue describing my favorite pastries. <laughs> so yes, uh, Exxon, Exxon Mobil, in the first major climate lawsuit to go to trial in the U.S. and the result of four years of investigation. Exxon Mobil finally went to court this October against the state of New York uh, regarding claims that Exxon defrauded investors by not disclosing the impacts that climate regulations will have on its business. Exxon is alleged to have shown its investors different carbon cost predictions from those it circulated internally, thus artificially and dubiously inflating its value. It seems to have internally projected a lower carbon regulation cost by 2040 than it told its investors. This double accounting made uh, probably made high-polluting projects look like better investments than they actually were, since uh, and could have thereby defrauded investors out of a total of $1.6 billion. Nicholas Kuznets writes for Inside Climate News, quote, The opening statements suggested that the case may turn on semantic arguments about what a reasonable investor would have believed from reading Exxon's reports and disclosures, and on a technical forensic analysis of what impact the company's practices had on its share price and value. Thus, the case will be about the fine print and wording of Exxon documents. Exxon's attorney tried to claim that there was a conspiracy uh, between liberal attorneys general and activists to smear Exxon, a claim that has already been dismissed by two judges. The attorney general's office uh, tried late last year Uh, to get this specific judge removed from the case because he holds Exxon stock, but he agreed to sell it after scolding the office. Shifting over briefly to Washington, Marianne Lavelle for Inside Climate News tells us that uh, how former scientists for ExxonMobil testified in Washington in concert with the New York trial that they had done climate change mitigation research for Exxon 40 years ago, but then in in the 1980s, the company turned its back on all their other projects to focus solely on oil, and then began putting ads out uh, discrediting the science of greenhouse gases. One physicist said in that hearing, quote, Whatever its intent, willful ignorance, stymieing an effective response to preserve quarterly profits, or simply an incomprehensible refusal to incorporate their own world-class research and results into their business plans, what they did was wrong. They, de- they deliberately created doubt when their internal research confirmed how serious a threat it was. The same scientists accepted AOC's point 
that, quote, in 1982, seven years before I was even born, Exxon accurately predicted that by this year 2019, the Earth would hit a carbon dioxide concentration of 415 parts per million and a temperature increase of one degree Celsius. Republicans then brought forward in that hearing a woman working for an industry-funded pro-Trump group of much the same kind that Exxon has funded to block U.S. climate action over and over again over the years, who said that everybody in the oil industry should be celebrated. Back in New York, former Exxon CEO Rex Tillerson testified this past Wednesday that he did not mislead investors, arguing that if the allegations were true, then they would have been misinforming themselves by lowballing the costs internally. Of course, it's possible that they assumed their massive lobbying efforts would continue to succeed, as they have over the years funded over 40 different think tanks to help destroy climate regulation. Alex Lubin for Vice News lamented yesterday that nobody asked Tillerson in the court about his alternate email using the name Wayne Tracker, which he supposedly used to discuss climate change internally, the records of which had been conveniently deleted. Massachusetts has also recently brought a suit against Exxon for the same thing, and the outcome of the New York case will have an impact on similar cases across the U.S. against other fossil fuel companies who argue that they can't be held liable for climate change. Although it is strange that a company like Exxon would think that it can't be held liable for the harms that it knew its product was causing, all the while lying about it for decades on end, deliberately misleading politicians and the public about the facts that its own scientists had uncovered in the early 80s. But the trial isn't about that specifically, it's about whether their investment projections constitute fraud or just a counterintuitive accounting decision. Nonetheless, the outcome could have implications for a great many other cases that could help change the way fossil fuel companies are expected to behave with regard to the economics of climate change. Man, I, I find this tactic very interesting. I, the because it's what's what's impre- what's interesting about 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 these types of things is that the the laws that surround investor protection are are pretty strong and uh, or at least are are, are are robust enough to take on something like this in a way that sort of these other lawsuits that you know like when you're suing the government say like them paying out money to you know to these to these youth is not a solution but this is sort of a another angle at at a at a way to sort of force these companies to acknowledge that they that they knew about it and that they lied about it and it's what's interesting is like trying to convince trying to our court system is, I think, would be very difficult as a way to get Exxon to be actually liable for damages that climate change caused. That's a sort of hard, I think, position to make. But to state that they knew what was happening and lied about it to their investors, I think, is an easier case to make, an easier case to litigate at the very least. Yeah, for sure. I mean, part of me, it's like, again, I'm a little bit frustrated that like the fate of the world is being decided by lawyers yeah, and accountants right. and yeah. like stock market analysts. Like they're well, the ones who are going to... And that's largely because they say the world has been entirely given up yeah. by the politicians, right? There's that like, Sure. They, they could have done something 30 years ago and we would not be here. And so, you know, but it is what it is. Uh, it's clear that there's no legal issue with uh, polluting the planet and yeah, exactly. making it inhabitable. But how dare you yeah. lie to investors about the financial implications of such actions. So, you know, it's going to be interesting. We'll see. This is, again, I think another tactic, uh, more pressure on these companies. Obviously, investors are going to be watching this. Uh, These cases could set a very dangerous precedent for uh, oil companies in general. 
Um, you know, this is they're, they're under a lot of pressure. Uh, I was doing a piece, uh, I write for Corporate Nights, and I was looking at coal mining companies late last night. And, you know, coal mining, I would say, is sort of that, you know, canary in the coal mine, that yeah. they're kind of the first industry that is now companies are going bankrupt yeah. uh, because of the lack of financing, because of legal implications, because, you know, it's just not as economic. I think from there, we're going to start to see uh, a lot of these companies, specifically here in Canada with the, the the heavier crude, that those are sort of going to be next on that carbon chopping block where, you know, those projects are just going to be uneconomic and, and fraught with all kinds of liabilities that, uh, you know, companies are just going to be walking away from them. And, and, and you've seen with, with, with PG&E um, and in California how a lawsuit can then change future actions, right? You know, like what you know, the, the lawsuit that happened, I believe, was last year that held them accountable for the fires that began that yeah. ended up killing almost 100 people and, and really ravaging uh, California has now led them to what I think is also terrible, which is uh, just rolling blackouts against everyone's will. Yeah. But, but, those are, but that's a, an example of a, a lawsuit that, is, that, have successful, that was successful in, in, in establishing blame and then changing their actions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, again, but different sort of thing. Just, just a really quick, uh, interesting detail to add on to the story there about the, uh, about the records. So they deleted a bunch of re- emails, right? Mm-hmm. And how are they not getting sued into oblivion? Well, there's a, there's a fine for doing that, for, for, de- for deleting emails that were supposed to be kept. And the best part about the whole thing was that the, the way that they did it such that it couldn't also be anyone's fault uh, is that they say, uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but it's just wonderful that this is the case, uh, that they had an automated deletion system that someone forgot to turn off. So they both <laughs> deleted the emails and it's nobody's fault. <laughs> <laughs> That's very convenient. Um, May I just point out, uh, Stephen, you seemed to imply earlier that the youth... A lawsuit was asking for money from the government in return. They're, they're not looking for money, right? But but that's you know that when you when you're the the, the way law, these law, civic lawsuits work, you know, you're you're, you're of course you they they don't believe that that's how you can. can, can that's how it actually happens, but that's sort of they're still using the same system of of of, of law. Mm. You know, it's a still civic. Is it still a civil suit? They're not coming at them for criminal charges. Mm. Um, but um, but yeah, so it's not exactly the same. But but still, but the point is, I think there is a level of like. You know that's what's different about taking on a company is that you can take on a company and actually just have financial regulations responses, which, which again, as, as to mentioned, has impacts on how investors think. Yeah, but the issue is, is it always comes down to how much is the fine going to be? Right. And that you know we talk about a cost of doing business, and that you know when you look at the, the at the absurd profits that are being made, you know, is this going to be enough to have that financially material impact? Right. And that's why I think with a lot of these, you know, and just like absolute praise to to environmental lawyers who are, you know, just banging their head against this system, trying to, ch- to change it. Because, you know, if we are able to establish precedence, then now all of a sudden that's like that's the much bigger impact here where, you know, then the investment analysts are going to be looking at the potential impact of future liabilities. And that's what starts to change that sort of cost benefit structure, which, again, like. I feel like these are like major decisions that are going to be impacting the world for generations. Right. And it's like coming down to cash flow projections and yeah. like, well, it's, it's the uncertainty, not the price, right? It's not the million dollars they're afraid of. It's the, how many more million dollar suits will there be? It's the uncertainty of the financial situation. That's the actual deterrent, not the million dollar fine they get on the one off. It's the precedent. As you said, what would be interesting actually would be if this actually impacted how they had to then report to their investors in the future. Right. Yeah. You know, if, 
if this impacted how they had to submit their sort of next projections, if they right. knew that that if the next projections were not aligned with climate re- reality, you know, then they might have to start saying, th- like, you know, I remember, you know, we have this thing come years ago when Shell was sort of le- was basically projected that they would be pumping the same amount of oil in 2050 as they would be now. And 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 that was sort of and that was a good news story for investors of Shell, and obviously terrible news story for those of us who want to live on a, on a, on a livable planet. But if if the, if you start seeing that they that their invest that the information they're giving to investors as their sort of are being held to account on the climate science, right? That would be very interesting. You know, like if you start having to release these sort of thirty year projections that admit to what might be happening from the oil companies, you then might see a different. Like then then that's what the investors are absorbing. And this is, you know, I, I forget the acronym TTFCB or something, but the Task Force fi- for Financial Carbon Disclosures, I'm just going to roll with that. <laughs> but that, uh, you know, there's this task force and these recommendations that is now becoming standard process. And, you know, my fear is that this is just coming, you know, 10 years, 20 years too late. Yeah. That we are asking for these disclosures. Investors were pushing for this stuff a long time ago. But because of this sort of delay, you know, uh, uh, deny and, and deflect sort of strategy, that that's really, you know, uh, uh, taken away uh, our ability to stay patient and to, you know, to ask for the measurement and the disclosure and those long-term plans. But I mean, it absolutely is coming when I'm looking at all these, you know, I looked at coal mining companies and, you know, they're now fully acknowledging climate change. They are saying, you know, uh, forced to disclose the information coming up with short, medium and long-term goals that are supposedly supposed to be aligned with the Paris Agreement. Although again, I was looking at Glencore, which is like a massive uh, 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 British company. Yeah. And uh, and they were, uh, uh, again, it's like, they they set a cap on their coal production that's actually higher than what it is right now. <laughs> and with coal mines coming offline, this is how they're justifying new coal mines. Right. That they're just like, well, you know, the old coal mines, right? And so we set mm. this cap. <laughs> and so, you know, they're, they're, we do need to have, I think, bigger discussions uh, about this. Um, and, and that really, if I could, you know, if I had the time to sort of be a full-time advocate, where I would want to go after is the stock exchanges. Mm. That, you know, all it takes is the Toronto Stock Exchange saying, okay, you have to disclose this if you want to be listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ or, you know, the New York Stock Exchange saying, you have to disclose this if you want to be listed. And so, you know, I think there are a lot of different ways where we can be pushing for change. Um, and I'm really excited to see this disclosure about these financial risks uh, uh, when it comes to climate change. I, I just worry that it's going to be like by the time we figure it out, it's kind of going to be too late that the disclosure of the risks won't matter if they've already materialized. Yeah, we're already living it. Uh, speaking of risk of going over time, uh, we, this is the end of the show. Thank you so much, Tim, for joining us as always. My pleasure. This has been The Green Majority. Have a wonderful green week, everyone, and see you all real soon.